Welcome to Rationalist, ladies and gentlemen. I'm here with the often facetious Eddie Matthews. That's me. Speaking of facetiousness, you're not gonna you're not gonna leave this podcast, are you? Are you gonna do a rationalist exit <laughs> <laughs> on me? Oh man, what an intro! This is this is the quality content. Viewers of Rationalist just don't get elsewhere. Woo! Uh, if you couldn't tell from that, we're here to talk about. Brexit today from across the pond. Word up. Um, so I'll give a quick uh, Al Jazeera did, it sounds like a person's name. My friend Al. No, the media outlet Al Jazeera did a really good comprehensive, um, just like Brexit timeline. So I figured I could run through a couple of those dates and then we could, and then we could go into a little bit more of what Brexit is, you know? Give it to us. Um, Let's just start at June 23rd, 2016. The referendum is held. UK votes in favor of leaving the EU. Um, I'm quoting the article. Pro-Bexit camp, 51.9% of the vote versus 48.1% voting to stay in the EU. Um, the day after, David Cameron, the Prime Minister, announces his resignation, and Theresa May is appointed soon thereafter. Um, Theresa May, who was a Remainer, and that, that's important to say for those who are not familiar with Brexit, the Prime Minister, the reason he resigned was that he was uh, campaigning heavily Remain. Um, but, you know, once they voted to leave, uh, obviously he had to go because of, you know, his positions. Uh, Theresa May was also a Remainer, and yet she was elected as the head of the Tories to negotiate the leave out of Brexit, which I always thought was a strange decision, but we can talk about that too. Um, and so she starts putting together the plans for Brexit uh, to, to leave. And so March 2019, 2017... Theresa May triggers Article 50, officially starting the process for the UK to leave the EU. This is about halfway through Al Jazeera's timeline. The UK had two years to negotiate a deal to leave the bloc. Um, Soon thereafter, a couple months, uh, Theresa May loses her majority. And then it's just gridlock, man. It's just back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, negotiating what this Brexit actually looks like uh, in the trade deals and whether there's going to be a f- you know, firming up of the border of Northern Ireland or not, whether that border is going to remain entirely seamless and Northern Ireland being part of the EU customs union, or whether it's going to be a hard Brexit and there's not to be what they call the backstop where there's a, an ongoing kind of like partnership with Northern Ireland and the rest of the EU. Um, and so... It's basically like Theresa May's whole tenure is just fraught with trying to negotiate a deal that sufficiently satisfies everybody. And so um, basically they delay the, because it was supposed to be March 29th, 2019, that they were supposed to be out. And they delayed that to April 14th and then to October 31st, which is what the current deadline is. Um and so, I, and maybe that's a good launching point for us to kind of launch into more what is Brexit, how we get here kind of thing. All right. Thank you for that rundown of what is really 
a complicated process, even though it seems like, it seems from a referendum, a yes or no vote would be a lot simpler. And we can talk about that, actually. I think that is one of the best reasons I've heard for why uh, the yes, the leave vote was able to eventually win a majority, um, if that's where you want to start. Sure. Why? So, referendum, if for those not aware, is essentially a national, or in this case, a UK-wide vote on whether or not the UK as a whole should stay within the European Union and the Customs Union. And referendums work best when both sides of an issue are very obvious as to what they are. For Remain, it was obvious. It was essentially saying things are going to stay like they are now. That's basically it. People can very easily imagine what that would be because they're living it in that moment. On the leave side, there were so many different versions of what leave could look like as we're dealing with now that anyone who even remotely had a grumble with being in the EU was able to project what they thought leaving the EU would look like. And the Remain voters did a poor job selling the worst versions of Brexit um, they've, they've done a lot of opinion polls in the aftermath and shown that now having known what it actually looks like to go through with Brexit, most people would have changed their vote. Not most people would have changed, but enough people would have changed where Remain would have won yeah. in the aftermath. And this is particularly true with the young voters in the UK, which are the ones that are going to have to deal with the aftermath, uh, mostly economic fallout from the eventual departure of the EU. Uh, departure from the EU of the UK. So there were some, yeah, I think what you mentioned, you mentioned branding, and I think branding was a huge, like the, like UKIP and the Brexit Brexiteers were way better at branding um, than the Remainers. And one of them was right, they, they painted these, I say painted, they had these advertisements on these buses and drove them around everywhere that talked about uh, you know, this statement, which um, we'll link to this independent article that, uh, independent, I mean the independent um, article that they basically uh, examined like seven of the lies um, that were kind of perpetuated with Brexit or, or significantly misleading statements. And one of them was Boris Johnson saying that um, we'll take back control of roughly 350 million pounds per week um, and so basically that was misleading because that was, because <laughs> it was false, because <laughs> it was entirely false. Um, he said roughly, uh, <laughs> so, um, it's, it's, that's just really a reductive way of something that's a very complicated, it, it makes it seem like they're just giving away 350 million pounds a week and getting nothing in return where it's an investment. A lot of that comes back in a rebate. A lot of it, um, comes back in investment into like in Wales, you would see the signs all the time where it would be like this project made through European union funds and we're invested here. And we, uh, I worked for a publisher over there and we published a book called, um, unfinished business. And it was by, a Welsh intellectual who was just talking about how if you're Welsh and you're pissed about, your, uh, you know, the, the museum or the art display that they used 50 million pounds to make in your community rather than investing that into the steel industry or into jobs creation, blame that on your local MPs. They're the ones 
who chose where to allocate the funds. It wasn't coming from Brussels, you know? So like the, yeah, I'm, yeah. So this idea that like you, that funding was from, from undue influence from European uh, people who had no connection to the locale or, you know, the people or the country or no ties or anything. And that they were, you know, uh, choosing where funds would go and would not go is completely erroneous. Yeah. And I just want to go back to just the basic concept of these two pitted against each other gave a huge advantage to leave. Yeah. It's a no coincidence that the last you know, six presidential campaigns in the U.S. have all been predicated on the idea that the candidate is going to bring about some sort of change. Take back control. Most campaign slogan, you know, Trump's campaign slogan. They're not about saying, we're going to keep things the same way they are, which is essentially what the Remain vote had to sell, well, which is a very tough thing to sell because it's just not fun. When you, when, you, when, you, when you do pit that against, like, hey, let's keep, let's keep the status quo versus take back control, which was the mantra of the Brexiteers, it's like, wow, yeah, take back control. That immediately speaks to every British person, whether or not, you know, they're remain or leave, you know? And so especially when taking back control was so complicated that nobody could really argue exactly. that specifics were gonna go poorly because nobody had ever done it before. Exactly. But the idea that we're gonna be we're not gonna have any any entangling, you know, treaties or alliances or markets. And that, you know, the British pound could be completely, well, to, to even imply that's completely autonomous, that any currency is completely autonomous, of course, is stupid. But you know what I'm saying. <laughs> uh, it, it speaks to this idea that of autonomy. Yeah, absolutely. So what, did, what do you think the most important takeaways are from Brexit for other countries that are uh, well, confronted with similar problems like immigration and financial lack of autonomy um, or a feeling of a lack of autonomy. What are some of the biggest takeaways? Yeah, what do you think Brexit has taught other countries? Well, I think it's taught other countries that, I mean, economically, it's much better to, to be integrated with your trade partners than to be disintegrated from them, right? I think that's one thing that negotiating this trade deal has proven so arduous and difficult because it's, well, I mean, assumedly, they're not going to negotiate. They're not coming from a position of power or leverage necessarily. They're not going to negotiate. They don't have the power to negotiate a better deal than they're going to have to, than they currently have, I think. I think that's something that would, that would be... Um, I don't know, a sobering thing for me looking at the Brexit situation if there was something uh, else to kind of come down the line um, like this in a different part of the world. Um, so I guess economically it would be one. Um, two, it's just the opportunity cost. Look at the opportunity cost of all the other things that the parliament could have been discussing for the past two years or three years at this point rather than are we going to stay or go? Like this is a perpetual, it's constantly sapping up all of their energy and time and thought and exhausting all of the constituents rather than um, let's look ahead for innovative ways to retrain uh, people who are being automated out of their careers. You know, like there's a lot of problems. The NHS is not in terribly good shape, I think right now, but it's, but it's 
worth salvaging. Like it's it's an incredible institution, but it's not in terribly good shape right now. Why not make that better? You know, like the opportunity cost. I think is another thing that is that would be very alarming um, to to someone in a different part of the world that was looking at something like this, like Texas wanting to secede, you know, or, or California or something. Gotcha. What do, do we what, want to talk about Bojo you... or? Oh, Bojo. Yeah. Well, so, uh, basically when Theresa May again failed to deliver on a Brexit plan and all eight of her options were voted down in parliament, it was very much clear that she was not the leader that could deliver this after two years of, you know, trying. And so um, they called an election, or rather the Tories uh, called an election and, um, you know, elected a new leader. And they elected Boris Johnson, former mayor of London, current lover of Winston Churchill. Um, He was the, uh, he was in... Theresa May's cabinet as well. And just, he's, you know, they call him the British Trump. I think that's misleading for a lot of reasons. He's a lot more articulate, a lot more kind of um, calculated. That doesn't necessarily mean that he's a brilliant, like, tactician. I think he's, you know, where his charisma's gotten him has is basically as a foil to Theresa May, because Theresa May has no charisma. Um, but it's also been a handicap for him in the, in the sense that, uh, people don't want to work with him, you know? And he, he essentially forced out 21 members of his party and then embarrassingly lost his majority, um, recently in parliament. And so these are things that Theresa May did not suffer, but Boris Johnson has, you know? So, uh, basically he's, I think he's quoted as saying like, I'd rather be dead in a ditch than delay Brexit one more time and yet mm-hmm. it's coming up October 31st and um, and he is from when he took power to now he is he is much further from delivering on you know Brexit or a no deal because he's lost yeah. so much of his party um, mm-hmm. and you know people don't want to do a deal with him so yeah um, and yeah he's just he's making a lot more enemies than friends right now from my understanding yeah, I think he's the quintessential populist. I think compared to Trump, he is a lot more politically savvy. He has a lot more experience in government. And I think the, the best fact that I can use to explain how he governs is the fact that he wrote both an article for Leave and Remain yeah. before deciding that he wanted to back <laughs> Leave because he thought it would be his best opportunity to lead the government yeah he's um, which has always been his goal he's an extreme opportunist yeah for sure and so and if yeah if your definition of populism is essentially that you have no values that you're willing to go along with the political wins yeah that is that is boris johnson yeah it's one of those things where sorry there's a big semi-truck passing right now sure dude sorry listeners (laughs) um yeah it's a yeah, you can't. Who knows what he actually believes? Is one of those. Th- I mean, he's one of those types of politicians, which most people would probably say that about most politicians. But yeah. And that brings us to the current happenings with Brexit. Eddie, you want to give us a quick rundown of what's happening today? Because at Rationalist, we are always up to date with ongoing happenings around. We're incredibly the world. timely. 
Um, <laughs> I finally found a CNN article that gave like a really good um, synopsis of what the parliamentary suspension means. Um, so right now, parliament is uh, has been suspended. And can you uh, can you give us the proper pronunciation of the actual term? You know I can't do that. <laughs> the term is prorogation. Nailed it! Brilliant. Um, Somewhere, Daniel Webster's smiling yeah. down on you. So apparently, this is the longest prorogation since like the twenties. Um, the basically, there's a lot of speculation that at this point, I don't know if is true. I mean, I guess technically it's speculation, but it's widely agreed that, um, you know, the suspension is a political measure for Boris Johnson to kind of limit the debate about a no-deal Brexit so that they can kind of uh, push through that October 31st deadline uh, with a no-deal and just have like a hard um, exit from the European Union, which would mean that they, they don't have a deal negotiated with um, leaving the single market that is, you know, Europe in the European Union. They don't have, um, you know, negotiations for the customs. It's just kind of, I don't know, to me it feels like they're driving off a cliff and hoping that uh, there's not a um, steep decline, I guess. <laughs> I think the full analogy would be driving off a cliff with no airbags and no everyone's unaware if there are seatbelts in there. Right. Well, and yeah. And Boris Johnson tells you that there's a parachute on the top of your car that you're driving. This is a strange <laughs> metaphor. What was his line? His line the other day was essentially like, "I'd rather be dead in a ditch." I think his his metaphor would be basically, ah, "So what if the car right. crashes? <laughs> At least we'll we'll be away from the migrants on the other side." Yeah, it's he's. I don't know. I no one knows. Nobody knows what the market will do or won't do. So it's an extremely vain. I don't know. To me, it's an extremely vain thing to think that you can uh, have a no deal hard exit and expect the UK economy not to go into a recession. Expect the pound to remain strong, like that. I don't. I'm not a. <laughs> I'm not a macroeconomist, but. That doesn't cohere to me. Yeah, I think most of the pretense of saying that this could actually help the British economy has gone out the window. Like we mentioned that before. Uh, at this point, everyone's sort of just like, hey, we made a promise, we're going to stick to it rather than thinking about the actual consequences. Um, and that brings us, I just wanted to, to see if we could talk about, well, let's mention really quickly that basically the prorogation is five weeks, which leaves two weeks back before the October 31st deadline. So there'll be two weeks when Boris Johnson is trying to hold a call for an early election. He needs two-thirds of the votes. Right now he is about 150 votes short of that, which, you know, is is pretty substantial. Um, So unless he's basically been seen uh, with the Northern Ireland political party that's in charge, that's his coalition partner, uh, to try to solve the hiccup that was the Northern Irish backstop that stopped May's deal in the past. And so that looks like his, his Hail Mary is to try to solve that somehow, but 
years of Irish conflict seem to make that something we should quite something we should probably explain for our American audience, which I imagine is much of our audience. (laughs) We should should we change all of our metaphors to rugby (laughs) metaphors in in honor of Ireland? No, just that um, or hurling hurling (laughs) metaphors because in America our elections are scheduled in Britain they are not some some of the elections are not scheduled so yeah. uh, basically if you have two-thirds majority in parliament you can call an election anytime you want and the prime minister can call it um, if she or he has that majority and so um, right now Boris Johnson desperately wants an election um, but he doesn't have the majority to call it as you mentioned and he just you know expelled 21 members of his own party, shrinking his majority even more. Um, so I don't, yeah, I, th- I think he sees himself, as we mentioned earlier, he sees himself as Churchill and he sees this as his big, daring, courageous, um, you know, leadership move that, uh, paved the pathway for a greater Britain moving forward. I can't imagine that that's going to materialize in the way that he thinks. Yeah, I mean, we can talk about Boris Johnson a bit more if we want to, but we can also, I just wanted to ask if you, I mean, you might not know what this means, but just from a pure speculation basis, which is our specialty anyways, (laughs) what do you think this means for the UK overall? What would would Brexit, hard Brexit mean? And what would, what do you think are the most likely uh, outcomes from this stalemate? I think... This prorogation game. I feel like the most likely outcomes is that small business owners and farmers are going to see their lives transformed um, for the worse by this, I would imagine. Like, those are the people I see really being harmed by a no-deal Brexit because they have to deal with the intermediate, um, you know, kind of hit that the pound would take and also trying to figure out how much, uh, you know, taxes they're going to have to pay on all the products that they imported that used to be part of a single market, you know? Um, Wait, I thought you said you weren't a macroeconomist. <laughs> I'm an expert. <laughs> um, so I feel like the small business owners are the one. I mean, I think uh, <laughs> I don't. I don't envy the job of, you know, being a banker on the 1st of November if this were to go through. Um, but I don't necessarily, um, well, I don't know. I'm sure there's a lot of good people in banking too, but that's, wouldn't be where my concern would be, I guess, for the health of the country. Um, I think that, um, yeah, as far as like the divisions in Britain, the average voter who, let's say the average voter who works in education, you know, because we both work in education, so let's take that example. At this mm. point, well, no, that's that's actually a bad, that's a bad example because education people <laughs> are typically more liberal and, you know, more informed about these things, so they probably care. But I'm just trying to say, like, your average British citizen who's not a business owner are not, like, following Brexit day to day. I think they're so tired of this years-long process that maybe they would welcome a hard exit just so that it would actually be final and that they could move on with their lives, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's been more than a year. It's been a couple of years now just 
all Brexit, I think it's pretty much impossible to get away from, even for ordinary people. I absolutely think that the appeal of a hard Brexit is somewhat <laughs> bolstered by the fact that people are just fed yeah. up with it. And they're like, shit, even if it makes our life worse, it can't be any worse than yeah. this, which was really the impetus for Brexit in the first place, ironically. <laughs> um, so, I, yeah, I mean, from a more... I don't know, macro scale, I think something that Yashka Monk brought up on his podcast the other day, which was interesting, is he was saying, unlike the U.S., where the Trump saga seems like it will be more or less settled in the next election, either he'll be reelected and this will be, you know, this populism will be here to stay and the Republican Party will be fully committed to this type of politics, or the Democrats will win and there's a possibility of going back to the 2016 prior era of less partisanship. Um, but in the UK, Scotland and the SNP have already said that they will hold a second referendum if Brexit goes yeah. through. And I would imagine that would be even more so if it's a hard Brexit. And there's, it's very likely that if some sort of deal has to throw Northern Ireland's interests out, we could end up seeing the total disintegration of the United Kingdom. Yeah. Um, and I think that's a problem that they're going to be dealing with for you know decades, even after Brexit or whatever the alternative. Tom Watson actually came out today, who's the, I believe, the deputy prime minister, not the deputy prime minister, the deputy leader of the Labour Party. Um, and he is basically the unofficial leader of the like center left within the mm -hmm. labor party, the opposition to Corbyn within his party. And he has a significant amount of support amongst more moderate labor supporters. Yeah. And he has said that labor should be focusing on holding a new referendum again uh, for Brexit rather than trying to win any sort of election for labor. Um, and so that'll be interesting to see how that turns out. As of now, the Liberal Democrats are the only like, major party specifically trying to get a new referendum back on the, pay the table, which has seen them substantially increase their vote share, or at least the interest in the in opinion polls in recent weeks. Yeah, totally. I mean, I um, why is it that all it seems like it's always the conservatives who are shutting down the government, you know? <laughs> Like, is there is there they something the like man. axiomatic about that? I mean, well, I guess there is because part of conservatism is small government, get government out of our lives. So I guess it would cohere that it would be conservatives who are more keen to shut down the government. But I just thought that was interesting. It's also, I think it's some sort of, I mean, conservatism is rooted in a kind of obstinance to change. And so I think the willingness to resort to just kind of sitting down with your arms crossed in the corner is something that happens across uh, right right wing parties across the world not always but definitely at time to time yeah and maybe you could argue that that's a better alternative than rushing into you know change that's going to be difficult to backtrack on i'm sure they would say that about brexit i wish they could have gone back and shut down the government then so <laughs> it's uh, it just depends i suppose you can't say that uh, it's always a bad thing but yeah there's definitely some correlations there yeah but at the same time i think if you're shutting something down there's no room for dialogue which 
Yeah. It's hard for me to get it's hard for me to get behind, I guess, being in favor of people like yeah, well, it's one thing to shut jobs. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think back in like not even that long ago, it seems like the old days, but back when both sides were willing to compromise, shutting down the government was more like, hey, we're gonna shut this down and take it behind closed doors and have some informal chats. And now it's like we're gonna turn off our cell phones and go to the beach <laughs> because we're not going to talk to anyone on your side and we're completely opposed to any sort of deal. Um, so what used to be a, you know, kind of a tool for informal collaboration has become more of just a straight up roadblock to dominant parties. Yeah. Shoot, man. Um, have we cheered up all our British listeners? Yeah, I think so. I think that <laughs> gives like a fairly confusing synopsis of, Brexit, but confusing is the only kind of way that you can give it, I think. I think the, for my friends in the UK, the worst part of all this is the fact that the US is just so utterly <laughs> divided and it's just, you know, totally devoid of anything optimistic about it. And the British can't make fun of us because they're just as bad. Uh, yeah. And I think it irks some of my friends so badly that they just want to be like, and then they know that we're just going to come back with Brexit. Yeah. <laughs> so I think for that reason alone, they're ready for Brexit to be done just so that they can uh, start to take the piss out of us once again. Yeah. Man, they were sitting pretty in, I don't know, what would have been a good year for them? 2013 <laughs> or something? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> 19, uh, 1855. Yeah. <laughs> From, yeah. Anywhere before World War Two, essentially. Yeah. Oh, cool, man. Yeah. That's that's a proper. It's probably our longest debrief. I think this still counts as a as a debrief. I mean, we didn't even get to go into too much analysis. It's so freaking complicated yeah. that you can just do an overview that takes time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, I'll. S- See you uh, rational issues on the other side.